This Week on Geek Explained, we're covering arguably the most influential comic event of all time. With the impending Arrowverse adaptation debuting this weekend, join us for the latest Geek Explained spotlight on Crisis on Infinite Earths. Welcome back to Geek Explained, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we can explain it. I'm your host, Eric Gazana, and today's episode is all about Crisis. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths is coming to the Arrowverse this weekend, starting on December 8th, and I'm super excited about it. So inside it. So excited, I can't even use words. Uh, so excited, in fact, that I have moved up the Geeksplain Spotlight schedule so that we could talk about the original comic of the same name. So we are covering the Geeksplain Spotlight on Crisis on Infinite Earths. Our Geeksplain Spotlight series, of course, is uh, monthly. We talk about a big comic event, whether that be a graphic novel, a, a limited series. If you haven't caught the previous month's books, definitely check those out. Those episodes are some of my favorites. Uh, last month we did Kingdom Come, and it was a giant-sized uh, Geek Explained Spotlight with uh, Jacob and Andrew, good brothers of mine, and I'm really excited to talk about Crisis on Infinite Earths, so uh, definitely talking about that today, along with our weekly review on Season 8 of Arrow, the penultimate episode, and kind of the big lead-in to Crisis as well, and of course, this week's comics countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. All right, guys and dolls, we have some news for you. Not a whole lot of news. It's kind of been a little light the last couple weeks. So we've got just three uh, bits of news. Of course, we have our four... Four? topics yeah our four topics uh film tv comics and miscellaneous news no comics or miscellaneous news right now but we do have a couple of uh, film and tv news so we're going to start off with the tv news and i'm really really excited about this because we finally got not just one but two different trailers for doctor who the newest season that's going to be coming to bbc and its adjacent bbc america um i think this year has been really um missing Doctor Who. Uh, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan and uh, not having the Doctor in my life for most of the year was a bit of a bummer. Uh, even though I think um, the most recent season with Jodie Whittaker's new uh, 13th Doctor ha wasn't the strongest. I thought it was really cinematic, really, really beautiful um, 
when it came to uh, shot composition. I just, I thought it was probably the most cinematic Doctor Who's ever looked. And I really liked the TARDIS team that we had for this season. Uh, Jodie Whittaker has a lot of growing to do into the role, and I'm sure that this upcoming season is going to do that for her. But we got two new trailers, one uh, right around when I was releasing uh, last week's episode last week, as well as a brand new trailer this week as well. So both of these trailers showed uh, various new uh, locales, uh, different scenarios they're going to be in. Seeing uh, the Doctor in a bow tie once again, I'm sure, was great for a lot of people who were a fan of Matt Smith's Doctor. And uh, one big thing carrying across it is this uh, plot, this uh idea i guess that something is coming after the doctor uh that something is hunting her and that the only thing standing between her and it is going to be the tardis team so i'm really excited about it uh the latest trailer also spoke of a crisis coming which especially with uh this week's episode as well as um really just december for dc uh crisis is a big big term a big uh flashing the uh, warning bells here at Geek Explained, but I'm excited, really looking forward to it. First trailer said that the new season would be coming in early 2020, but this recent trailer that came out this week said that the uh, first episode will drop New Year's Day. So it looks like at least this version of the Doctor for um, uh, Chibnall and Whitaker's era, they're going to be doing New Year's Day specials instead of Christmas specials, which is, I think, personally a little disappointing, but I still think it's going to be a great season. I'm optimistic. I really hope that they learn from their mistakes from the previous season, and it does seem to be that. I like the, just from what we've seen from the trailer, uh, the locales, also some returning villains, uh, including the, um, the Cyber men which i'm really excited about as well as uh, the jadoon so really excited looking forward to that for sure so that does it for tv news for film news i'm going to start off with something positive and that is the black widow trailer uh the black widow trailer dropped uh, i think at like 3 a.m uh, eastern standard time this week while uh, for us over on the west coast it dropped right at midnight uh, i thought it was pretty pretty cool um, it looks like they're trying to go for more of a uh, mission impossible vibe with this film which i dig i really enjoy the mission impossible films but i'm going to be interested to see how they kind of blend that with the mcu sensibilities also nailing down a timeline seems to be even like stranger now i still believe it is going to take place during the five-year gap so during the five-year gap between infinity war and uh, avengers endgame i'm really i'm putting all my eggs in that basket a lot of people still think it's going to be after um after civil war and before infinity war but we're going to find out we're going to find out in may so it looked really interesting i really liked what i saw from uh, uh florence Pugh playing uh, yelena belova her russian accent was super good and then uh david harbour what's not to love about david harbour uh, he's going to be playing Red Guardian, and he is automatically now my favorite character so far, just from this first trailer. Uh, looking forward to it. Looks really good. We also got the first 
trailer for the teaser trailer for the next uh james bond film no time to die um looks like your standard bond fare good stuff i've been a big fan of daniel craig's bond even though his uh his time as bond has really been uh a story of peaks and valleys but i'm looking forward to it and that does it for uh the two trailers that dropped this past week now we're going to talk about um some not so great news so right now rumor is and i just wanted to touch on this a little bit i don't want to get too ranty about it because um i know that i will and i have so i'm not going to uh, commit too much time to it Uh, i might save that for a future episode but reports are coming in this week that Uh, Warner Brothers is unsure of how to move forward with the Superman character. They said that they, or rumor is, reports have said that they have met with uh, Michael B. Jordan, have met with uh, J.J. Abrams on how they can make Superman relevant. And I just, it makes me really frustrated because you don't have to make him super relevant i'm using quotations for uh for podcast listeners i just it's so frustrating when you see a character that you love that you really think is quite possibly the best fictional character ever um and a studio with the amount of manpower and woman power um to make a make an adaptation of it great just is half-assing the work to put into it. Um, I recognize that uh, Henry Cavill's time as Superman has not been super well-received. I am still a huge Man of Steel defender, but I can absolutely see what people's problems are with the character when it comes to Batman v Superman and especially Justice League. But I just... It's frustrating because you don't have to do a whole lot to make Superman an entertaining film. Um, I just, ah. but again, I'm not going to get too far into it because, um, my, my response to them not knowing how to, uh, make Superman work in a film, um, is coming. So I'm going to drop that little tidbit here with you folks. Um, it's coming. I have a big response coming to that uh, very, very soon. So that does it for the news for this week. Like I said, kind of a light news week, but they have been the last couple weeks, and I'm sure that uh, we're going to get some big news in the next couple weeks as well. So uh, without further ado, we're going to hop right into the main meat of the episode, the entree course, if you will, which is the latest Geeksplain Spotlight on Crisis on Infinite Earths. Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, where do you even start with that? <laughs> um, this month's Geek Explain Spotlight, which is, of course, our series where we take a look at some of the greatest graphic novels in both DC and Marvel and just comics in general history. Um, 
And this is a special one. This is one of the uh, the big events, big graphic novels that I wanted to cover when I came up with this segment. Um, this is Crisis on Infinite Earths. This was the first huge company-wide crossover for DC Comics. They'd had you know smaller crossovers before, like uh, Flash of Two Worlds, Crisis on Two Earths, uh, etc., etc. But this one promised to be a huge multiverse-shattering event, uh, bringing in heroes from all different kinds of continuities. And this was, I would say it became the template for every single other huge crossover, uh, whether you're thinking about DC or Marvel Comics, uh, that followed it. Um, it did debut in uh, 1985, which I think is uh, pretty, pretty great timing here with the 85th episode of Geek Explain. So episode 85, not just... Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths debuting in 1985, but also it taking center stage in episode 85. Uh, it was written by Marv Wolfman with art by George Perez. And um, like I said, this is, the, this is the big one. This is the big event that changed everything, not just uh, in continuity when it came to bringing down the multiverse, when it came to uh, rewriting the history of a lot of characters, but also it became this sticking point for not just DC, but for all of comics. Like, if you are looking for a huge, earth-shattering event, you call it a crisis. If uh, you're looking for something to uh, radically shake up the status quo in your, you know, given or respective universe, it probably has... Um, tangentially something to do with the elements that were involved in Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, this book is so incredibly important in the annals of DC Comics history, and uh, this week we're going to talk about it. So I am going to try... <laughs> um, I'm going to try to get this story down into as bite-sized a... Uh, into as bite-sized a form as I can, but it's a big story. This was a 12-issue maxi-series that ran from 1985 into 1986, and lots of stuff happens in this book, but it all really starts with uh, two main characters, that being Lila and Pariah, Harbinger and Pariah. Um, both of these characters, as you know, have been... Uh, teased and or revealed in uh, the Arrowverse so far in the lead up to the DC TV Crisis on Infinite Earths which is debuting this weekend as of this recording of course and uh, these two characters really are the um, the crux of the story we have a lot of heroes that show up here and I mean a lot of heroes that show up here but everything really kind of kicks off with these two characters uh, pariah is someone who is fated to watch as world after world after universe after universe are destroyed by the antimatter wave uh, it's not revealed until later on in the book why this is but as we come to find out, Pariah was a scientist on his Earth who was looking to unlock the secrets of um, 
of the birth of the multiverse, much like Krona way back when, at the birth of the multiverse, in fact. And Pariah was a well-respected member of his scientific community, but his, um, his selfish uh, pursuit of knowledge spurned him from the scientific community, and so he, in essence, um, continued his research while being a pariah to his own community and unfortunately this poking and prodding into the opening of the multiverse awakened the anti-monitor and as such anti-monitor chose pariah to be his witness and as and the anti-monitor spread his influence across the multiverse destroying world after world after world um, pariah was forced to bear witness to each and every single world as it was destroyed uh, which is really uh, poetic and tragic because this man who wanted nothing more than to um, and wanted nothing else than to selfishly find out how the multiverse was born was now forced to watch it die. And that brings us to our other lead character, which is Lila, the harbinger. Uh, Lila was a was a young girl who was cast away at sea and she was found by the monitor at a very young age and raised by him so lila is imbued with this otherworldly force that allows her to um transport herself not just through worlds but also through space and time so lila is set up to be essentially the monitor's uh the monitor's uh, assistant Kind of like his secretary, the person who gets all the people together for him. And uh, real quick, side note, tangentially, um, I want to make sure that uh, we're up to speed on the multiverse. Multiverse, vast number of Earths, um, an infinite number of Earths, in fact. And the two uh, main players in the creation of the multiverse at the time of this story were the Monitor and the Anti-Monitor. Uh, these two beings were both born of the mat matter and antimatter universes, and during a struggle, they're the exact mirrors of each other. So the monitor is kind of um, was kind of created out of this need for the matter universe to have a guardian to watch over it, while the anti-monitor was birthed from the need for the antimatter universe to have a guardian to watch over it. Uh, so. What happened, essentially, is that the two of them battled. Uh, the Monitor just narrowly won, sealed the Anti-Monitor away for millennia. And then when Pariah reawakened the Anti-Monitor, uh, his first stop was to Quard of the Antimatter universe. There he took over, violently I might add, and turned them into these shadow creatures that he would then send off into other worlds to basically primed them for him to destroy them. Very Galactus-like, but this was, um, I would say, a little bit more destructive because he's not actually feeding off of these Earths. He's just outright destroying them. So to the end of um, defeating the Antimonitor and stopping him from destroying the Earths of the multiverse, the Monitor 
through Lila created a team. This is the OG team that I have in my notes here that were first set up to be sent into, I believe it was five different time periods to destroy these antimonitor towers that the antimonitor had uh, constructed in these time periods. And the members of this team included the Psycho Pirate, Firebrand, Simon, Blue Beetle Ted Cord, Solovar of Gorilla City, Geoforce, Firestorm, Killer Frost, Earth 2 Superman, Arian, Dr. Polaris, Cyborg, Obsidian, Dawnstar, and Green Lantern, John Stewart, who was fresh into his uh, role as the Green Lantern, still rocking the Hal Jordan uh, costume with a sick afro. Um, and if you kind of started to catch on during that roster, you could tell that these characters were not just brought together from different time periods, but also from different Earths. The Monitor is uh, constantly keeping guard over the entire multiverse, and as such has watched as heroes from each Earth were born and tested, and so the Anti-Monitor believes that this ragtag team will be able to stop the anti-monitor's uh, threat. So he breaks them off into separate groups, sends them to their separate time periods to uh, varying degrees of success. Meanwhile, we catch up with Barry Allen. Now, Barry Allen um, has been having an interesting time when the beginning of Crisis starts. Uh, recently, he decided to leave the uh, leave his current timeline to go live with Iris in, in the, I believe it was the 30th century. Uh, the two of them raising children and really just kind of living a retired life. But uh, Barry was captured by the Monitor, or not the Monitor, the Anti-Monitor, as well as uh, the Anti-Monitor using the Psycho Pirate, who he abducted from the Monitor's team to keep Barry docile. Uh, Barry Allen has a huge role to play in this. Uh, Barry Allen, if anybody really is, um, if anybody really kind of takes center stage as the story goes along, it, it really is Barry Allen. Uh, if any one single character is known and is kind of synonymous with Crisis on Infinite Earths, it would be Barry Allen the Flash. And that's because um, he does end up sacrificing his life during this story. Uh, later on, um, there is... God, there's a lot that happens here. Uh, it's kind of hard to like take it all sequentially, but um, Barry Allen, for most of this event, is a prisoner of the Anti-Monitor, being forced into submission by the Psycho Pirate, whose ability is to use his... Um, it's kind of like a mask to force emotions onto other people. So he keeps Barry terrified and docile while the anti-monitor schemes continue. Uh, the teams are soundly defeated throughout the time periods in the multiverse by uh, the anti-monitor's um, shadow creatures. And then we are also introduced to, near the beginning of the story... Uh, Earth 3, or reintroduced, I will say. Uh, Earth 3 is the crime syndicate Earth. It's basically where all the heroes are 
evil and all the villains are good. And the only soul living uh, superhero is Alexander Luthor, the world's only superhero against the crime syndicate. And we kind of open up this story with the crime syndicate. Earth 3 is being destroyed by the antimatter wave. The crime syndicate is helpless to stop it. And there's a great moment between uh, Ultraman and Power Ring where Ultraman talks about how they spent their entire lives trying to uh, rule this world. And now in their final moments, they are trying to save it. And as they kind of find figure out that all is lost, uh, Ultraman has pretty much the perfect Superman moment for him because he looks at Power Ring and he's like, this is what I got to do. I got to fight to the very end. And he flies headfirst into the antimatter wave, which destroys him. Uh, meanwhile, Alexander Luthor returns to his home with his wife, Lois, and the two of them send their baby off into the multiverse on a rocket before the world is destroyed. Uh, of course, very uh, distinct parallel with uh, Superman's story and the destruction of Krypton. But this baby is found by the Monitor, and this baby becomes Alexander Luthor. He is artificially grown throughout the, uh, throughout the story. We see him in various stages of growth. And... He is essentially, because of his trip through the multiverse at such a young age and escaping the antimatter universe, he, or the antimatter wave, uh, it's, uh, it's so hard to keep track of that, um, he is uh, affected by all of the multiversal trauma around him and it gives him reality warping powers so alexander luthor is the most powerful version of an alternate version lex luthor uh this story also is notable for giving us a new dr light and that is kimio hoshi uh she is a researcher who is basically given uh powers through the monitor uh, she's given the ability to strike back against the Anti-Monitor's shadow creatures because she is, of course, using light. And this was the debut of her character, and she would continue to be a pretty integral member of the Justice League throughout the 80s and into the early 90s. Um, one quick thing I want to address real quick as well, uh, the issue 4 cliffhanger. At the very end of the issue, it kind of, it basically... Um, the antimatter wave has gone through every single Earth except Earth-1, and they're making their last stand, and they fail. Ultimately, from what it seems like at the end of the issue, they fail. And it's issue four. There's still eight issues after this when this happens. And um, it was startling. I remember reading through this the first time. I'm like, I'm only, I'm not even halfway through the book yet, because I got this back when it, it was a... Uh, it was a graphic novel, so that's how I read it. And um, I was shocked by this. But as we come to find out, this results in the, uh, I guess you could call it the New Earth, which is basically a melding of Earth 1 and Earth 2, which were the final remaining Earths at the time of uh, the destruction of the multiverse. And that just kind of smashes both of the Earths together. This happens, I think, twice across this story, uh, where... Essentially, they take all of the Earth-2 characters and just plop them on Earth-1 with no explanation. Uh, 
Um, there's a funny moment when Earth 2 Superman just walks into the Daily Planet and he sits in the editor's office because on his Earth, he is the editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet. And Earth 1 Perry White comes in, he's like, what the hell are you doing? And Earth 1 Kent has to be like, oh, this is my uncle, Clark Kent, who I am named after. And it's so, it's so funny. But after this, we find out that there is still... Uh, there's still some stuff that has to happen here. Um, the anti-monitor threat is not uh, not solved. In fact, they lost, so they have to bounce back. And to that end, um, they bring together a new second team comprised of six members of the multiverse, across six heroes across the multiverse who each represent their Earths. So they have uh, Superman from both Earth-1 and Earth-2, they have Captain Marvel, also known as Shazam, Lady Quark, Uncle Sam, who's one of my favorites, and uh, Ted Kord Blue Beetle. Again, Blue Beetle's killing it in this uh, in this story. Uh, and then we kind of come into the halfway point where uh, lots of stuff go down. Because if there is one other character who would be uh, considered synonymous with Crisis on Infinite Earths besides Barry Allen, it would be Supergirl. Because even if you've never read the story, you everybody knows the image of a distraught and um, dis just completely in anguish Superman holding the lifeless body of Supergirl. That happens in this story. Uh, they mount an offensive directly on the anti-monitor where um, the anti-monitor is tough. At the same time that this is happening, his antimatter cannon is set and poised to destroy the new Earth. And Barry Allen finally escapes his confines. So at the same time in their finest hour, Barry Allen and Supergirl both stand at both stare down the biggest challenge of their superhero careers. Uh, Barry Allen forces himself to run around the uh, energy field of the antimatter cannon in the opposite direction so that the cannon will essentially destroy itself. But by doing this, he essentially, in the comic, at the time, looks like he shrivels up and dies. And his spirit goes through... Um, goes through the speed force into the past at various points, as well as one point in the future as well, where um, earlier in the Crisis on Infinite Earth story, before uh, he is recruited into the fight, Batman witnesses him, I believe twice, just his specter of him reaching out for Batman wanting help. Uh, this, I think, is just super well done, because very early, I believe it was in the first or second issues, um, Barry appears to Batman and he's like, everything's dying around me. Like you need to find Iris. And he's just like, it's like, whoa, what is happening here? Um, but he essentially destroys the antimatter cannon and saves the multiverse. Meanwhile, everyone has mostly uh, defeated the antimonitor, but he is now lashing out in anger and just 
wasting everybody. So they realize that they have to retreat. So to give them time to retreat, Supergirl stands alone against the Anti-Monitor. And she just kicks the crap out of him. This is a Supergirl at the height of her powers. And she is going toe-to-toe with the Anti-Monitor and winning... Um, there is a moment where she hesitates. Antimonitor, unfortunately, is able to strike a killing blow, but the damage to him is so severe that he has to reconstruct a new body following this fight, which is the Antimonitor, uh, the form of the Antimonitor that I think most of us are uh, familiar with. Now, Kara has sacrificed herself to make sure everyone could get away. Superman of Earth-1 goes back to find her, and she dies in his arms. So, it's just, ugh, it is, it's heartbreaking, it really is. And the two of them making that sacrifice, Barry and Kara, Flash and Supergirl, really set this story apart because this at this point in time was when death still mattered in comics jason todd was still robin we hadn't had any uh any uh death in the family yet um super the death of superman was still a good seven years away so death still meant something bucky hadn't been brought back yet um the the rule was still kind of in place where you don't bring back Bucky, you don't bring back Uncle Ben, and you don't bring back uh, Bruce Wayne's parents. Those were the four that were completely off limits, and throughout the years we have seen that rule be broken more times than we can count. But this, this mattered. Um, Barry Allen was lost, he was dead, he, he was presumed dead. Kara was actually dead, dying in Superman's arms, and this generated a huge status quo for the company as well as for the heroes within that universe and though the battle was still a long from being uh, over at this point you really felt both of their deaths when they happened uh before we get into some of the you know the final act stuff i just want to hit on some miscellaneous stuff that i really love um there's this weird uh, middle point after they after the death of Barry Allen and Supergirl where they, I guess they just didn't know what to do for like two or three issues. So they're like, you know what? We're going to have the Legion of Doom show up again. And like had the Justice League who were still kind of recovering from this battle with the Anti-Monitor and the Anti-Monitor was still building his new body. Um, we're not prepared for... Uh, for the Legion to fight. But they do end up defeating them and um, all is well before we head into our final confrontation. This story also gave us uh, Guy Gardner as the uh, as the Green Lantern full-time. Uh, previously, he had been the second man to bear the ring, but because of a really dumb... Um, dumb incident where he was trying to save someone while protected by the Green Lantern ring and was hit by a car and went into a coma. Uh, the ring was passed on, or the role rather, was passed on to John Stewart. During this event, uh, Guy is woken up and he is given a brand new spanking ring to continue the fight. Um, we also get a great 
subplot with the other Legion, that being the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, I love the Legion of Superheroes. If you're not picking up the current book, I definitely think you should be doing that. But um, heroes from the Legion are also brought in to uh, fight during this, not just uh, the little superhero supervillain war, but also against the Anti-Monitor. My boy Monel is flying all over the place. You see him in the background in most of the battles here. And I just, I really enjoy it. And all of the Legionnaires take it super hard when they find out that Supergirl has died. And I love that attention to detail. It's really, really just, it, it really sent home the, it hit home the, um, the idea that this is something that will, uh, that this death of the multiverse matters. That, you know, losing all of these other worlds and all these other continuities um, is kind of a radical shift because showing that, you know, Supergirl, who was both part of the mainline continuity as well as this possible future with the Legion, um, the interconnectivity really uh, was shown well here during this event, I think. And they took a lot of care in those relationships. So when they ended, you felt it. Uh, we also got to see the birth of a new wildcat, very short-lived. Uh, Ted Grant gets injured pretty early on in the story during the um, initial uh, team-up stuff. And so a new wildcat uh, shows up. She's a female, uh, first female wildcat, I believe. And uh, she doesn't stick around for very long, unlike the new female Dr. Light. But um, I just thought it was worth mentioning here. So as we head into this final confrontation, um, the multiverse is getting ready to... Or the multiverse is pretty much dead. So they're waiting to um, build this new world. And it's really going to come down to if they can defeat the Anti-Monitor or not. So while everyone is kind of like trying to keep the world that was currently there, which is smashed together between uh, Earth-1 and Earth-2, um, a certain select group of heroes went off to fight the Anti-Monitor. Um, it was pretty much all your heavy hitters who could fly, essentially. So we're talking uh, both of the... Every Superman you could find at this point. Uh, Shazam, Wonder Woman. So a lot of... Uh, heavy hitters went into this battle and it was a straight-up war uh, the anti-monitor was so hell-bent on destroying creation that the battle ends up going back to that distinct moment the moment of creation the birth of the multiverse and at the end of all things who would show up but the specter and so the specter battles with the anti-monitor uh, for a little bit before he is overpowered and as we head into the uh, birth of creation everything is kind of falling around everybody um they are able to defeat the anti-monitor if only momentarily now the reality that they're fighting him in is crumbling around them and so everyone has to leave but the anti-monitor is not going to just lie down and let them leave if he's going to go they're going to go with him so the Earth 2 Superman decides that I'm going to go and I'm going to hold him off. 
Um, Earth 2's gone, Lois is gone, all I have is this, and I'm going to hold him off so you all can escape. So he goes down, and there's this great uh, panel where um, the uh, narration is basically like, every hero was birthed from him, and now everyone understands why. And it's just so cool. The Earth 2 Superman is like one of my favorite versions, and I hope that the Brandon Routh version of the Kingdom Come Superman takes a lot of hints from this version since we're not going to get technically an earth two um and i just oh it's so good so he goes and he's you know 1v1 wanting the uh, the anti-monitor until he's joined by superboy prime now superboy prime comes from a universe where there are there are no superheroes he essentially comes from our universe where uh, dc comics is fiction all these characters are made up and he is the only superhero on his Earth. He is legit Clark Kent, named after the comic book character, but he comes to find out that he is legit a Kryptonian from the planet Krypton and is the only hero on his Earth. Of course, his Earth is destroyed during the crisis, and he has nothing to go back to. So he joins with Earth 2 Superman to finally strike the killing blow on the Anti-Monitor, casting him into the void and destroying him. Now, as the two of them are waiting for the rest of the reality that is uh, crumbling around them to eat them alive, they are visited by Alexander Luthor. Now, Alexander Luthor shows up and he's like, I can take you from here. Um, we need to get out of here. And Earth 2 Superman's like, no, like, I don't have anything left. Earth 2 is gone. Lois is gone. I've, I've accepted my fate. And that's when uh, Alexander Luthor reveals his biggest trick, which is that uh, he has like a pocket dimension held within him. And in that pocket dimension, he capped Earth 2 Lois. So the two of them are able to reunite uh, and all of them kind of retreat into uh, Alexander Luthor's pocket dimension safely away and away from the now collapsing multiverse. So that is where we leave those characters. We won't see them again until Infinite Crisis decades later, but that's important. <laughs> so at the end of this story, um, the death of the multiverse has happened. Uh, the new Earth, uh, everyone wakes up and it's not not the new earth that they had been kind of all inhabiting during this event, but it's a new prime earth where the, not just the characters, but the histories of earth one and earth two were kind of folded into each other. So in this new reality, Jay Garrick was the first flash, but Barry Allen followed him quickly after, uh, the justice society happened, but the justice league, uh, came after they all retired. So this blending of the universes, taking an infinite amount of Earths and blending them all into one separate Earth was the biggest takeaway. Um, in the aftermath of this story, we also got new updated origins for both Wonder Woman and Superman. The uh, John Byrne Superman run was birthed out of this. Um, his new more sci-fi heavy stories really came out of this. And um, this also started to kind of um, 
open the door for some darker, more mature stories. Uh, following this, we would see the death of Superman. We would see Nightfall. We would see a death of the family. But another big, and I think one of the biggest uh, moments coming out of Crisis on Infinite Earths was the passing of the torch, which was the Flash. As we talked about earlier in this uh, discussion, Barry Allen dies during this uh, during this event, and at this point, um, Wally West had been retired. Wally West was Kid Flash for a time, but recently, pretty recently before this event, uh, it was found out that every time he would use or he had. Um, he had contracted some kind of uh, disease where every time he would use his uh, his speed, it would shorten his life. So he retired from being Kid Flash and only took up the suit again once he was visited by Barry Allen. And, of course, with the, you know, death of the world thing happening. So um, it's during the aftermath of this where we find out that his brush with uh, the anti-monitor and with everything that happened, it purged the uh, cancerous cells from him so that every time he used his speed force, it would no longer be killing him. And so he took up the mantle of the Flash. Wally West goes from Kid Flash to Flash here. This was the first big... Um, the first big instance in comics where a legacy character took over for their mentor. So that's notable as well. Um, and that's, that's pretty much it. I tried to make it as, um, as digestible as possible. If I miss some stuff, um, I, it wouldn't surprise me because there is a lot that happens, but I tried to point out some of the key stuff and why this is a story that you should read. If you haven't read the story, it is on the DC Universe app. I am not sponsored by them, though they could be a sponsor. Um, but they have all 12 issues in its entirety on that app as well. Also, you could go to any of your uh, local comic book shops. They, I'm pretty sure, just released a a new, another new edition of Crisis on Infinite Earths. It is something that every comic book fan should have a copy of on their shelf, just for how much of an impact it had on not just the DC universe but on the industry as a whole. Um, I'm really excited about Crisis on Infinite Earths this weekend. This is a huge event that I never thought would ever be adapted. Um, this is a big deal, and it's something that is going to be... Uh, it's going to shake up the DC TV universe as much as it did for the comics. I'm really excited for a lot of the stuff that we've seen uh, teases of. Kingdom Come Superman by Brandon Routh. Uh, Kevin Conroy finally playing a live-action Batman. Um... The return of John Wesley Shipp's 90s Flash. All of this stuff, the potential of the multiverse crashing and Supergirl and other heroes finally coming to Earth-1. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot I'm looking forward to. Uh, the death of Oliver Queen. Possibly the death of Kara and Barry as well. We don't know what's going to happen to them. Uh, this whole season of The Flash has been setting up this idea that Barry is 
you know, preparing everybody to protect the city after he's gone. So I'm really looking forward to see what they do, how they uh, adapt certain elements of the story, and then how they differ. I think I'm more excited even for that, because uh, Kingdom Come Superman wasn't in the original Crisis on Infinite Earths. That story wasn't even written yet. So I am ecstatic to see Crisis this weekend. I hope you are too. Um, it's just, ah, uh, it's a huge event. Um, we're going to be covering it in, uh, the weekly review, which is, uh, coming up in this episode as well. But I just think that this story is so integral, integral, in, integral to the, uh, to the history of not just DC Comics, but comic books as a whole. Uh, worlds lived, worlds died, and nothing was ever the same. It is now time for the weekly review. This is a segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing the season eight the final season of Arrow, uh, the penultimate episode. I think, and I'm I could be wrong here, but I think this is the next to last episode. The uh, the showrunners, uh, Greg Berlanti, Mark Guggenheim, uh, revealed that Arrow is going to be debuting its final episode. I believe on January twenty eighth of twenty twenty. So if all is how I think it is when it comes to scheduling. Uh, we're going to have this episode. Crisis is going to happen. We're going on a large break. And then uh, the last two hours of Crisis are going to happen. And then we get this final episode of Arrow. So this is the next to last episode. I think if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm sure someone is shouting at me uh, right now as they're listening to this. But this week we are reviewing episode number seven entitled Purgatory. And... When it comes to Green Arrow and Purgatory, it means one place, and that is Lian Yu, which is where I think the majority, if not the entirety, of the action takes place. And it was really cool to finally go back to Lian Yu um, after I think the last time we saw it, and they referenced it in the episode, was that um, Adrian Chase blew it up. So that was the last time that we saw Lian Yu, unfortunately, but I was super stoked to get back into the island on in the forest area, uh, seeing everybody just running around doing crazy stuff on the island is always kind of where uh, Arrow, it's, it's its bread and butter. It's what really, for me, some of my favorite parts of Arrow were the flashbacks back on Lian Yu. So I really enjoyed this episode, if you can't tell. But um, this episode had a lot going on. It had a lot to do, and it had to set up a lot, because this is the final episode before we head into Crisis this weekend, as of this recording, of course. But uh, one major thing that I think a lot of people are going to kind of overlook is that this episode brought back uh, two major characters from season one. Now, season one told the in the flashbacks the first year of Oliver on the island when he was learning how to use the bow, uh, meeting Slade Wilson for the first time, as well as meeting two characters who made their return here, that being Yao Fei and William Fires. So those two direct 
opposition of each other. Fires was kind of the villain for the season one flashbacks. Yao Fei was the one who taught Oliver. So I really dug this. Uh, you can tell that this was kind of through some of uh, Marnovu or the monitors. Um, magic-y, magic stuff that brought them back to life. I really dug it. Um, it gave me serious season one flashbacks, and I I love that so much. So really enjoyed that. And then I also really liked bringing the entire team together. We had Lila, we had John, we had uh, Roy, we had um, Renee, Dinah, Laurel, and then we also had uh, Connor, William, and Mia. So we had a whole nine people, which kind of comprises the current modern day Team Arrow here. And having them all in one place I thought was really cool. Having uh, William C. Roy, modern day Roy, for the first time was a nice little moment that they unfortunately kind of blew past, but I enjoyed that little moment that they had. Uh, this also was a big episode for Roy. Uh, on, I think right near the opening of the episode, uh, Roy, Renee, and Dinah are flying with supplies to Lian Yu to meet up with everybody when their plane is shot down by Fire's men. And uh, uh, Renee and Dinah kind of make it out okay. They're a little scuffed up, but they're all right. Roy, however, uh, is in a bad way and he gets his arm pinned underneath some of the wreckage of the airplane and as soon as they said his arms pinned i knew what was going to happen because famously in the comics at least pre-new 52 um a big turning point for uh roy harper was the cry for justice storyline where the villain prometheus who was adrian chase in this uh in this show uh cut off Roy's one of Roy's arms as well as blew up the city he was living in killing his daughter um <clears throat> bad news for Roy but as soon as uh they showed that he was pinned I was like oh man they're cutting his arm off and of course that is where he uh did get his arm cut off they tried uh Diggle was very against this idea but Roy ultimately made the choice so that they would be able to get away from Fire's men uh I'm hoping that Roy has something to do in the crisis and that we get to see him rock a sweet mechanical arm but we haven't really seen him but we'll see I guess we'll see we haven't seen a whole lot of when it comes to like uh set photos or anything we haven't really seen a lot of um some of the major characters that are showing up in this, we're talking uh, uh, Kevin Conroy's Batman, we're talking uh, Brandon Routh's Superman. The only thing that we've seen from them is officially released uh, footage. So I'm hoping that we get some surprises here. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but the big thing here was to push us forward and towards Crisis, and that includes Lila becoming Harbinger. The entire reason that they've been like collecting these items for, the for this entire season was to create this weapon, or what they thought was a weapon, it was a sphere, where when they finally complete it, they realize that the weapon slash sphere isn't for Oliver, it's for Lila. And so she takes the sphere, It something happens, it awakens something in her, and she warps out through a portal. Meanwhile, we get a big throwdown, and I love this scene. Uh, Fire's men are like getting ready to do whatever they do, and uh, Oliver shows up with the entire battle-ready Team Arrow, and... I just, I loved it. Minus Roy, minus William. 
Uh, I just, I really dug this. Having a big, large-scale battle between all of them. Uh, something that Arrow has always done really well, having those kind of fight scenes with multiple combatants. So I really enjoyed that. And uh, ultimately, you know, the heroes win the day when Lila is, uh, I'm assuming, becomes Harbinger. And when they get back, Oliver starts saying his goodbyes. And this was, it felt a little rushed to me, go jumping right in there um but i think you know they had to wrap this up really quick to let us know that hey it's time for crisis and so uh oliver starts off saying his goodbyes to roy loved it says his goodbyes to william tells him how proud he is oh really good stuff um also gets his goodbyes with uh renee and dinah who immediately and i loved this renee is just like pass not taking that no thanks it's not over till it's over and it's so strange because I love Renee as a character and I really think that um, they did such a great job at reinventing that character from the comics who is just completely different. Um, but it also, while I'm watching this, kind of gives me like comic Roy vibes. Like the whole, Renee's whole thing in this show really should have been Roy's arc, but I'm fine with what we got because we got two great characters out of it. Um, and then we got the final goodbye scene between uh, Oliver and Diggle. And we've been, you know, we've been heading towards this for a while, but I really dug this. I liked that it was still on Lian Yu. They talked about, you know, the two of them always being together. Oliver saying, you know, I couldn't have done this without you. Which, again, I touched on it in a previous episode. Really isn't just for me watching it as a viewer isn't just um oliver talking to diggle it's also Stephen amell talking to david ramsey like this is like it was the two of us and felicity and we made this and i couldn't have done this without you and i loved that it was really really good and then before they head off the island uh oliver has to do one more thing and you see him go to the gravestone of his father robert queen and he's kind of getting ready to send off. We know this is the last time he's probably going to be on the island. And then Mia shows up. She was originally the first one on the boat to leave. And she uh, <clears throat> she goes to talk to Oliver. And they have this really sweet and touching moment. And again, one of those fourth wall breaking things where she says something along the lines of, Thank you for letting me be part of your story, even if it was just for a little while. And Oliver says, I think you're going to have stories all of your own. Which, of course, foreshadows the uh, spinoff show that Mia is going to be leading. But I really liked this moment. This was one of the uh, few times that I really, I was really touched by Mia as a character. Uh, you all know that I've been very critical of Mia as a character so far. But this episode made some big strides towards me really, really liking her character and wanting to see her succeed as a lead. Uh, I thought that she has made the kind of steps that she needs to uh, become a more fully rounded character, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what she brings to not just Crisis, but beyond that as well. So they're getting ready to say their goodbyes, head towards the boat, and all of a sudden, Red 
skies. The skies turn red. It's time. Lila shows up in her full Harbinger garb, and she's like, Crisis is here. So that is where the episode leaves off. It is time for Crisis. And then we get, I have to mention this, um, a post credit scene, which from what I've heard from other people has been the uh, post credit scene for all of the Arrowverse shows this week, which is uh, Nash from The Flash. He is uh, the newest version of Harrison Wells showing up at this like ancient dig site. And he sees these symbols here and something speaking to him. And he says, I've traveled the multiverse to kill you, but now I'm here. And uh, this voice speaks to him, tells him to like basically access it. He hits these symbols in a certain order. The wall shows up, blinds him with light, and then sucks him in. I'm assuming, I don't know this for sure, but I'm assuming that Nash is going to become... Um, Oh, what is it called? Um, oh, that's bother. That's gonna bother me. We talked about this. We talked about this today. Pariah. Uh, I'm assuming Nash is going to become Pariah, and that he is going to be just like we talked about in the epi- in the uh, the spotlight portion of the episode. That Pariah is kind of the reason that the Anti Monitor has awakened. So I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's crisis time, folks. We're here. Um, crisis officially kicks off this weekend on Sunday, uh, December 8th. I will be watching it. Uh, next week's weekly review is going to be a full-scale wrap-up of everything that happened in Crisis, uh, at least for the first three hours. I found out this past week that um, even though the crossover is a full five hours it's only going to be the first three hours this time around and then the final two hours is going to be in january after the hiatus so really excited still really looking forward to everything um i just ah, i'm so excited about crisis so look forward to next week tune in for the full-on crisis review but for now for uh geek explain we're gonna head over for this episode to this week's comics countdown Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop or on Comixology or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you'd like me to try out, feel free to request that on uh, social media or through email. Uh, Before we get to this week's book, Though, of course, we have to talk about last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And um, for those of you who listened to last week's episode, you know that there were slim pickings last week. We didn't have a whole lot of books to choose from. But there was one book out of those, uh, out of that small group that I really, really enjoyed, and that is Detective Comics number 1016, written by Pete J. Tomasi, with art by Doug Monkey. Uh, this concluded the Nora Freeze, Victor Freeze storyline in Detective Comics, and I thought it was really, really well done. Um, this whole arc has kind of been about setting up Nora Freeze to be the new uh, Mrs. Freeze. 
to kind of take her husband's place in uh, Batman's rogues gallery. And I thought it was really well done. Uh, they also hearken back in this book all the way back to Forever Evil, the uh, the big New 52 event, which I loved. Loved the callback for that and the, uh, the focus on not just continuity, but also to an event that I thought was really, really well done. So I enjoyed that. Uh, they also had a really tragic and um, poetic end for Victor in this in this issue that kind of uh, pulled him off the board for now. So I really like that. I'm looking forward to seeing where Nora Freeze goes next, and I overall just really like the book. So that is the pick of the week of last week, but that was last week. Let's talk about this week, and this week we have eight books. Just like I said last week, I knew that Every time we go from a really, really short week, there's always a bunch of books to talk about the next week, so let's dive right in, starting with Web of Black Widow, number four of five, written by Jody Hauser with art by Stephen Mooney. Uh, this book's been great. As a spy thriller, it has been fantastic. There's a lot of intrigue, a lot of mystery, and Natasha has been kicking ass with her uh, extended uh, supporting cast, and I'm really looking forward to this issue because um, one of her long-standing relationships, it looks like, is going to be focused on here. So to uh, elaborate on that, let's jump into the synopsis here. Shot through the heart. Iron Man. Winter Soldier, Yelena Belova. The widow is running down the names of her past, and few are more important than Clint Barton, a.k.a. Hawkeye. Natasha has always been Clint's weakness, but this time, the femme fatale may find herself outmatched. So, Natasha and Clint, Black Widow and Hawkeye, they have been... Attached to the hip for as long as we can remember, both in comics, in cartoons, on film. And I'm just really excited for Clint to finally make an appearance in this book. Um, I'm also, as a complete side note, really excited for the um, Hawkeye Freefall book that's going to be coming out, I believe, in January. So really excited about that. I just, I love Hawkeye as a character, especially the comics version. Uh, it's going to be written by um, Matthew Rosenberg with art by Otto Schmidt. And I love, love, love Otto Schmidt's art. And I'm a big fan of Matthew Rosenberg writing uh Clint Barton writing Hawkeye. So I really like that. Uh, if you haven't picked up his Tales of Suspense book, uh, you need to do yourself a favor and read that. It teams up Clint Barton with Winter Soldier, two loves of Natasha, actually. And their focus is to track down Natasha after a certain event kind of takes her off the board. So I would check that out and also check out Web of Black Widow. Next up, we have Young Justice number 11, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by John Timms. Um, this book is interesting because it's gone through a lot of different, I would say, phases. The early phase started out really strong with uh, Patrick Gleason writing or uh, doing the art on the book. But as soon as he kind of left it felt like some of the spirit of that book went with him. Now, John Timms is a great artist, and he works really well with Brian Michael Bendis' sensibilities, but um, the book definitely feels like it's kind of slowed down, and especially this last arc where they were kind of world-hopping, there was a lot of um, 
creative possibility and it feels like they spent too much time on earth 3 which i was a little bit disappointed by and of course all the Tim Drake shenanigans that have been going on in this book. But uh, this issue kind of matches them up with another Wonder Comics uh, star, that being Naomi. So she's officially joining the ranks of Young Justice. So yeah, we'll see how that does. <laughs> so let's jump into the synopsis here. Young Justice returns home to Earth. Finally. Just in time to confront all of their big issues, like Star Labs, Moms and Dads, Naomi, Jenny Hex's trunk, and yes, each other. This starts the wild wind-up to Wonder Comics' first year as the truth behind Star Labs and the reunion of Young Justice is revealed. So along with uh, Naomi joining the team, it does seem like we're going to get some answers to why the team was brought back together, so uh, really looking forward to it. Next up, we have Old Man Quill, number 12 of 12. This is it. Uh, it's written by John Tyler Christopher with art by Robert Gill. Um, this book's been great. Though I would say it hasn't been as good as other Old Man stories, uh, I've been really enjoying it, and I'm looking forward to see this final issue, especially if you have been reading each issue of this story. Uh, each chapter is kind of heightened itself that i feel like the book has gotten better over time and i'm really excited to see what the showdown eventually is going to be in this book so let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here quill versus galactus peter quill is the only thing standing between galactus and earth's destruction and considering quill's track record earth is in major trouble the ultimate conclusion of the wasteland saga for the man formerly known as star lord ends here so i'm really excited about this i i just i love the wasteland as a as a backdrop uh star lord putting him in this kind of uh western style story i really enjoyed as well and putting star lord up, up against galactus is a huge move so i'm really really excited to see exactly where that goes next up we have justice league number 37 written by scott snyder with art by george jimenez um i've been loving this book uh this is continuing the justice doom war and it looks like this is the penultimate chapter to that story um i believe it ends next issue with justice league number 38 but i'm not totally sure don't quote me on that uh, but I've just been loving this arc, and I've really, it's gotten me really um, in the mindset to go back and read this whole run. I haven't been keeping up with it as much as I should have, and from what I, all I hear is positive things about this book. Uh, I picked up the first, I believe the initial uh, arc, like the first six issues, and I kind of dropped off from it, but I jumped back in with Justice Doom War, and I've been loving it, so I'm definitely going to go back and reread all the issues that I missed, but this has just been fantastic, so without further ado, let's jump in the synopsis here. Justice Doom War Part 8 The Justice League is making their final push against Perpetua, but some players they previously counted as allies may have been working for the other side the whole time. Who among Perpetua's children will betray them and join Lex Luthor's war on justice? So that's really interesting because they've already been uh, betrayed by the Anti-Monitor during this story. So it kind of sounds like the Monitor is going to betray them as well, or... Um, the, um, uh, what's it called? The, uh, 
the world forger i forget his name but the book's been really really good uh scott snyder actually released and uh george jimenez as well released kind of the uh, double page spreads of the justice and doom armies kind of running at each other to clash so i'm really excited about this book this book has been so so good and i definitely think you should pick it up Next up, we have Batman, number 84, written by Tom King, with art by Mikhail Janin. Um, this book is just, it's so good. And this is the penultimate issue to Tom King's run on the main Batman book with uh, 85. That's going to be it. So we are heading into the final act. This is it. Uh, this is going to be the big clash between Bruce and Thomas Wayne after the conclusion of the batman and bane war that's been going on we kind of found out essentially that uh thomas wayne has kind of been pulling the strings this whole time so i'm really interested to see how they're going to wrap this all up so let's jump into the synopsis here city of bane chapter 11 the end is near as one victory leads to another defeat as Batman reclaims his city from Bane, can he regain his sense of family? More specifically, when a man who is your father from another dimension has torn everything down around you, what will it take to build it back up? Especially when that man is currently staring you in the face and threatening to punch it. The final battle for Gotham City and the Cowl of the Crate Crusader starts here. So I uh, really excited. Batman versus Batman, Bruce versus Thomas. It's gonna be really good, um, and it looks like the final uh, final part of this is gonna be this two part story of, of Batman versus Batman. I really dig it. I'm looking forward to this, and if nothing else, Tom King's uh, gonna go out with a bang on this Batman book. So next up, we have X Men number three. Written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Lanil Francis Yu. Uh, this book's been interesting. So uh, the first two issues were really kind of odd, especially the second issue and kind of how different they were from each other. But they are telling a larger story. Jonathan Hickman is kind of telling a large story across like the X-Force, Marauders, um, Excalibur, Fallen Angels, all of those books. So this is just one piece, the flagship piece of that story. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's jump into the synopsis here. Earth's most powerful, Cyclops, storms the Savage Land. The most powerful heroes of the dominant species on the planet, the X-Men, rise to protect the world against any threat. From a new foe in the Savage Land to an old nemesis's surprising return. So that sounds interesting. Uh, last issue, we had Krakoa bond with another stranger island. So it looks like we're now going to be jumping over to the Savage Lands. There's going to be a lot of forest, a lot of island stuff. Um, I'm looking forward to it. X-Men vs. Dinosaurs is always a way to get me re to read a comic book. So I am looking forward to this for sure. I just smacked the mic. Uh, sorry about that. But uh, next up, we have Marauders. Marauders number three, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lolly. Um, I've been loving this book. Uh, each issue has been so, so good. Uh, Matteo Lolly's art has just been fantastic, and I'm really digging this new direction for Kitty or Kate uh, Pride. So I'm really looking forward to this book. Let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. 
Saltwater and Hellfire. The new Black Bishop of the Hellfire Club. Sebastian Shaw recruits a new Black Bishop, continuing with his machinations against the two queens of the Hellfire Club. Meanwhile, Captain Kate and her marauders wreak havoc on the high seas from the Atlantic to the Pacific in the name of the mutant cause. So last issue, it did reveal that, as we kind of all assumed, Kate is going to be the Red Queen, so she rounds out the Hellfire Club's uh, governing body with uh, Emma being the White Queen and Sebastian being the Black King, but there are all kinds of Game of Thrones-style political machinations that are also kind of underlying this book. I'm really interested. It looks really, really good, and, um, and, and the book, if nothing else, is very pretty to look at. So definitely, definitely pick this up. And finally, the big book of the week for me is Batman Universe, number six of six, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Nick Darrington. Uh, this is it. This is the final chapter for this story. I've really enjoyed it. All of the kind of out-of-continuity team-ups have been fantastic. Nick Darrington's art has been stellar, and Bendis's writing has actually been pretty good, I think. So... I'm really digging it. I'm sad to see it go, but I'm excited that I get to read this final chapter of the story, and I hope that it sticks the landing like I know it will. So let's jump into the synopsis here. In the conclusion to Brian Michael Bendis and Nick Darrington's DCU-spanning saga, Batman's mind is trapped in the unlikeliest of places, inside a white lantern ring. That would be bad enough, but his physical body is stuck on Earth, completely vulnerable to attack from his enemies. Good news! Batman's freed when the white lantern ring chooses a new recipient. Bad news! That new recipient is Vandal Savage. So... Again, I love this book. Uh, Batman vs. Vandal Savage has also been a really great conflict that we don't see enough. Vandal Savage is a woefully underused character in DC events, so I love any time that they include him. And I am really excited to see how this story wraps up. If you haven't been picking up this book, go back, pick up the previous five issues, and then pick this up on Wednesday, which I guess is today. So... Um, to recap, we have Web of Black Widow, number 4 of 5, Young Justice, number 11, Old Man Quill, number 12 of 12, Justice League, number 37, Batman, number 84, X-Men, number 3, Marauders, number 3, and Batman Universe, number 6 of 6. If I missed any books, feel free to let me know. I would love to have that conversation with you. I love discovering new books. Um, again, the whole reason that I picked up Marauders in the first place was because someone recommended it to me. So I love discovering books that way, and Marauders has definitely become one of my favorite books that I've been reading the past couple months. So definitely look forward to picking these up. Pick up any of them, pick up all of them, but make sure if you haven't Catch up on Batman Universe and get Batman Universe number six of six. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, feel free to let me know your thoughts on anything that we talked about today, whether it's Crisis, uh, the Arrow episode that we covered this week leading into said crisis, uh, any of the news that we covered this week. If you, uh, like me, are a little uh, ticked off by the news that Warner Brothers doesn't know what to do with Superman. Or if you want to talk about any of the comics, feel free to reach out to me 
on either of our social medias at GeeksplainedPod, that's at GeeksplainedPod on Twitter and Instagram, or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Um, I'm really excited about Crisis, guys. I just, I've been waiting for this ever since they announced it uh, for uh, during um, the end of elseworlds last year and really i mean ever since the very first episode of the flash where they teased the red skies and the crisis uh seeing the actual red skies show up on arrow this week was really cool and i cannot wait for sunday really looking forward to it um if you enjoyed listening to me just talk at you about geek stuff uh feel free to give us a rating and review on itunes really helps us out really kind of uh elevates us and gets us on the radar of listeners just like you if you did not like what you heard today um never mind but honestly um i would love to have any kind of conversations uh with you guys i've been getting a lot of great feedback having a lot of good conversations when it comes to all of the stuff that we talk about uh, next week, uh, we're going to have a huge stacked uh, weekly review, as you know. And then we're also heading into the end of the year and the end of the decade. So next week's episode is going to be an observant of that. Going to be a big countdown list that I am excited about. So definitely stay tuned for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geeksplain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you.